We are continuing our work in James, and this week we're doing the first 12 verses of James chapter 3, that very famous passage on taming the tongue. So I invite you to, if you have a Bible, uh, open it to James 3. The words will otherwise be projected that you can follow along. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set upon, is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This morning as I begin, I echo the words of the commentator Martha Moore Keish, who said, the actual irony is, is that I'm about to speak about how dangerous it is to speak. <laughs> James, 1, James 3, 1, as we already read, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So it is with a sense of irony and a um, sense of trepidation that I do talk about this topic, partly because I do speak quite a bit, but also I do post on Facebook. And I sometimes post things on Facebook that are commentary on our social, political, cultural uh, life together. And I do that because I do want to speak to injustice and societal wrongs. I also believe that satire is okay. I've been a fan of political comics since I was a teenager. I actually still have a whole album filled with cut-out Doonesbury comic strips from the late 60s and early 70s, which primarily were commentary on the Vietnam War and President Nixon, so you can imagine what the content of those comic strips is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with good satire. I also attempt to not call names or be derogatory, not to use a broad brush or post things that are absolutely not true. But still, a 
wrong use of words is possible. So I'm standing before you as a hypocrite. I include myself in this passage and in this message as much as if more than as much if not more than anyone. So if you want to say he said this, but look at this what he said, listen to this what he said, or this Facebook post, I admit it, you're probably correct. But James says we all stumble, so that includes me, in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. And see this word perfect appearing again. By now you should know the Greek word behind that word perfect. Anybody? Any guess? T-E-L-O-S. Telos or telos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. This Greek word that doesn't mean perfect in the sense that I got 100 on my spelling test. means perfect in the sense that I'm meeting the purpose for which God made me. So you see this theme coming in James again, this same word. That the use of the tongue is designed to make us, help us become together with everyone, our community, the kind of people that God has made us to be. And then James goes on with these wonderful images. This, this passage is full of images. The first one is the image of the bridle, this small little bit that you put into the mouth of the horse, this great big animal, this small little piece of metal by which you guide their whole body. And then there's the rudder. My son is a, is, is, a, is a sailor. He sails all the time. And one of the things that's always amazing, if you look underneath the boat and you see the boats in boat yards up on the, up on the, up on the hard, as they call it, these little tiny rudders that control this whole ship, even with the force of the wind and the waves, which can just absolutely be tremendous. And still there's this little rudder controlling this great, big, huge... Um, boat weighing weighing tons and then there's this idea of the fire this small fire that can set apart that can set on fire a whole forest and I'm sure many of us have still in our minds I don't think there's any going on right now maybe there are they're just not being shown of these huge fires over the last few years out out west usually started by a spark by some electrical fault happening in a wire uh, something very small and under and 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 all of a sudden tens if not hundreds of thousands of acres are being burned off so there's this this small little thing this tongue this these words that have this huge effect and there's all kinds of ways that I could go with this I could talk about our personal use of the tongue how we talk to each other I could talk about gossip, I could talk about rumor, I could talk about um, coarse language, I could talk about insulting and putting someone down. I'm going to choose a particular topic today because I think it's relevant and it's something that's not talked about in church very much. And it's fascinating because it comes directly from one of the commentaries I'm reading. I'm reading commentaries that are modern enough that they actually refer to websites in them. That's, that's, John Calvin never did that, and Martin Luther never did that. So that's uh, super cool. 
And in this particular commentary by, by Martha Moore Keish, she refers to a website called dangerousspeech.org. And the purpose of the website is to talk about dangerous speech as it's being used around the world, but particularly in our society, in, in the United States. And I recommend it, especially if you're a young person, I recommend that you go take a look at the site. There's a ton of information there. Dangerous speech. She, she defi- the website defines dangerous speech as this. Dangerous speech is any form of expression, speech, text, or images that can increase the risk that its audience will condone or commit violence against members of another group. Importantly, the definition refers to increasing the risk of violence, not causing it. We generally cannot know that speech, a specific speech, caused this specific violence. But we can say that dangerous speech increases the risk of violence. And then they go further. People don't commit violence against other groups or even condone it spontaneously. First, they must be taught to see other people as pests, vermin, aliens, or threats. Malicious leaders often use the same types of rhetoric to do this in myriad cultures, languages, countries, and historical periods. We call this dangerous speech. Violence might be prevented by making it less abundant or less convincing, We work to find the best ways to do this while protecting freedom of expression. So this dangerous speech is speech that is used to refer to the other, either the individual, but most often a group, as a pest or a vermin or an alien or a threat that paints the other with a a broad brush negatively, and sees the other as a threat to me. And this website is very careful to say that's not a direct cause of violence, but it increases the risk of violence. And then they get more specific on the website. To rise to the level of dangerous speech, at least two of these five indicators must be true. A powerful speaker with a high degree of influence over the audience. Think of a Hitler, for example. The audience has grievances and fears, and I would add in parentheses, that may be real. They may not be real, but they may be real. That the speaker can cultivate. A speech act that is clearly understood as a call to violence. A social or historical context that is propitious for violence for a variety of reasons, including long-standing competition between groups or resor- for resources, lack of efforts to solve grievances, or previous episodes of violence. So when you have two groups of people who are struggling 
against each other or competing, maybe a better word, for resources or for attention or for whatever they consider to be their rights. And then the last one, a means of dissemination. And then remember before, they've talked about speech, text, or images that is influential in itself. And here you can think of cable news, you can think of Twitter, you can think of social media, Facebook, etc., etc. A means of dissemination that is influential in itself, for example, because it is the sole or primary source of news for the relevant audience. I find is pretty fascinating and pretty clear stuff. And a pretty good application of what James is talking about. This use of the tongue that starts small, that starts with a word, that starts with a sentence, that starts with a slogan, that starts with a concept, that starts with the calling of a name, that starts with painting with a broad brush, and there may even be an element of truth in it, but it sets the other over against me. And as that continues, in the, it, as it has been shown through history, this leads to the forest fire of violence. And I'm just putting this out in front of us because I think this is quite relevant in our time today. It's something that we're all thinking about, something that we're all wondering about, something that we're all um, evaluating. How, how do we speak to each other in today's world in a way that doesn't increase the risk of violence? Because as I often say also from here, there are deep themes and threads and streams of violence within our society. And it doesn't take much to tap into them. And so I want to give you this as consideration as you, as you, as you think about this passage. Obviously think about your own personal use of your tongue and how you do that within your family and work context and our, and our, our church community context, whatever community you're involved with. But in addition to that, what is this use of the tongue as it's described here doing to our society? And what can we do about this poisonous use? James is real strong. This, this tongue is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Is there anything we can do about it? James says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And James here piles again images upon one another. How can it be that from the same spring, both fresh and salt water can come out? 
Well, it can't. It's an impossibility. How can it be that a free fig tree can bear olives? It's impossible. Everyone knows that. Or a grapevine produce figs? Also impossible. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And what James is saying is, it's an issue of the heart. Whatever your spring is, whatever, wherever your roots are, whatever's sitting deep down in the heart, that's what's going to come out. And if there's salt water there, if there's anger in there, if there's enmity in there, if there's jealousy in there, if there's fear in there, that's what's going to come out in your words. The, you, you, you can't have from the same source, you can't have from a good source bad things, or from a bad source good things. It just doesn't work. And of course, as we will say often during this uh, series on James, who was the brother of Jesus, one of the words, set of words of Jesus that he must have been thinking about was this from Matthew 15. Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then just a little bit later, verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus says what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. The words that you speak, the things that you do, the things you lust after, the jealousies, the envies, the pettinesses, the unjustified angers, the putting other person down, the not being willing to listen, to put someone else on the margins. All of that, says Jesus and James, is rooted in the heart. So how are we going to get to that heart? How are we going to do more than just promise to, for example, pay more attention to what I put on Facebook. Or just promise not to say this anymore. Or promise not to say that anymore. That will almost certainly fail unless something happens in the heart. You can't just say, I'm not going to do this if nothing happens in the heart. The two are intimately connected. What's in the heart rises and comes out of the lips. So if you want to change what comes out of the lips, you have to change what comes out of the heart. And James gives us a hint. Actually, I think it's more than a hint, but it's at least a hint. In, in 3.9, which we've already read, but I'm going to project it again. For with the tongue, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The idea that you would see other people as made in the likeness of God 
And if I had more time, and if we were in the Sunday school class, I would uh, go into nerd theology zone and talk about that word likeness. There's a Greek word behind that word that's used only one time in the New Testament, and it's used here. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that um, we would need actually a lot more expertise than I have to plumb the depths of. But it brings God and man, God and his creation, God and people, much, 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 much closer than we tend to think. For those of you that want to know, the, the Greek word is homoousios. It's the word homo in it. You see that in there. This, this connection is almost being of the same substance. So James is saying, how can it be that you bless God, but then you look out at someone who's made, all, not quite, but almost in the same substance as God? And curse that person. How can you look down on the immigrant, documented or not? How can you look down on that member of another religion who's made in the likeness of God? How can you use an epithet when you're talking about a person of another color? How can you exclude from your, from your midst also using words those of another sexual orientation or the neurodiverse or those of another gender or those of another socioeconomic class status or those of another political party? or persons with a disability, or the ill, or the elderly, especially those with memory loss, or the incarcerated, or the unborn, or the other, or the sinner, or even as Jesus and Paul taught us, the enemy. If you look around and you see other people as persons like you, like us, made in the likeness of God, the similitude of God is, I think, the King James word. How can you look down on them and then use words that paint them as enemy, alien, vermin, animal, threats, less than. How can you use dangerous speech when you're looking at people who are made in the likeness and image of God himself? And once you're looking from that perspective then that begins to change the heart. And it becomes harder and harder, although we all stumble, as James says, 
to speak those words, to think those things, to speak those words. And it should become harder and harder for us to listen to them. We should not tolerate dangerous speech. John 1 says, famous verse that you all know, Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He bridged the gap. There's no gap. He joined men and women who were made in His likeness. And that's how He saw them. And we have seen His glory because that's a glorious thing. And that glory is as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And when this Jesus is the one whom you follow, when the Spirit of this Jesus is living inside of you, when this Spirit of this Jesus is the bridle, the rudder, then the pools of salt water, the pool of poison, the pool of venom begins to change. And that reflects itself in your attitude and in your words and how you interact with other people. About 22 years ago, I remember it as if it was yesterday, I was walking around Peace Valley Lake with a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. And I was struggling deeply at that time in a variety of ways. And he said to me, said, Norman, it's like you have this pool, this reservoir of of anger in your heart. And there's this dam in front of it. And you are scared to death that this dam is going to break. And this reservoir of poison is going to flow out and damage, if not kill, those around you or your relationships. And that's why you don't speak openly and honestly. That's why you're so closed. That's why you keep a lid on everything, because you're afraid that if you open that lid, what's going to come out is going to kill people. It was a pretty bold thing to say. But he was right. There was so much anger and so much fear and so much venom that I was scared to death to talk, to say anything. That there was this, this lid on it, this, this keeping everything down. And as soon as you start doing that, of course, your relationships begin to break down. Because they're so controlled by this anger and by this fear. And so what's happened over the years since then, as imperfect as it has been, is this process, number one, of admitting that, that there is this reservoir of poison 
this reservoir of anger, this reservoir of fear, speaking that out to the appropriate people and in speaking it out, letting it go and hopefully to some extent let the Spirit of Christ that's full of grace and and truth replace that reservoir of venom with the reservoir of grace and truth. So that now you see people differently. Now you see people as made in the image and the likeness of God. And you're able to interact with them in different ways. And you're not so afraid to speak. Because even if you make a mistake, you could still ask forgiveness and mostly get it. Certainly from God. And you're not afraid to speak the truth. Whatever that truth is. And always appropriately. And always when the trust has been built and the trust is there. But it's a liberating and it's a freeing thing to experience that reservoir of poison slowly being drained and replaced with the grace and truth that we find in Jesus Christ. I don't want you to follow my example or, or anything like that at all, but I do want to challenge you to think about the words that you use Where are they coming from? And what steps could you take to open yourself up to this work of Jesus Christ and His Spirit so that out of your heart you can not just bless God, your Father, but bless those who are made in the likeness, in the similitude, in almost the same substance as God our Father. And imagine what freedom and what joy and what glory that would give for you and for us as a family, us as families, within our families, within our community, within our Trinity community, perhaps even by God's grace within our nation so that our nation would become less and less the dangerous place that it is becoming for so many. May God give us the insight and the grace and the courage to do what I believe James is calling us to do. Amen.